Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome, everybody, to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Really excited to have as our guest on this episode, Dr. Paul Copan. He's here teaching our Impact 360 Gap Year students right now, so always awesome to have him here. Here's a little bit about him. He is the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University. His books include The Gospel in the Marketplace of Ideas, An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, Creation Out of Nothing, Did God Really Command Genocide, and Holy War in the Bible, and also the author of the new book that we'll be talking about called A Little Book for New Philosophers, Why and How to Study philosophy. So just a lot of great stuff. One of my favorite authors and professors out there, uh, Dr. Paul Copan. So Paul, it's just great to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Great to be with you. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about this. You know, some people kind of think, okay, goodness, philosophy. Why, why study philosophy? I mean, isn't theology more important? And maybe how do those two relate? How do we think about that? Well, uh, the philosopher Alan Plantinga said that Philosophy is just hard thinking about things, in particular, uh, hard thinking about ethics, about knowledge, about reality. And theology is going to involve hard thinking about God. And so it's, it's not as though we are going to make a hard and fast distinction between theology and philosophy, because philosophy is also going to include thinking about God. And in fact, N.T. Wright, the noted New Testament scholar, talks about how the Apostle Paul would have been more in the camp of a philosopher rather than a religious person in the Mediterranean world. That just like Socrates, who kind of stirred things up, portrayed a new vision of reality, that he talked about a new way of doing things, a new ethic, a kind of a new, even a new social order. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing uh, when he is proclaiming that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, that there is a, that there is a new creation that has come through him, and that there is a, a new family that has been created, a new social order, that there is a new way of living in light of what the Messiah has come to do. And so, so when people say, when they dismiss philosophy, again, are you using the first century's understanding of philosophy or, the, or, or today's? So I would highlight that what we see going on is often a misunderstanding of what philosophy is. Philosophy is actually a tool to help us to understand more clearly, to articulate our views in a, in a more coherent way, that we start to see things in a more logical and rational way. And that is a, a tool f- that all of us can use, whatever our discipline happens to be, that, uh, that philosophy is something that actually encourages us to think more deeply uh, about the choices that we make every day. There are often philosophies that are behind it. In fact, it's some people say, oh, don't give me philosophy. I just like the practical realities of life and dealing with those. Well, that is a philosophy of life. That is a philosophical approach to things. You can't escape some sort of a philosophical or worldview way of thinking. We're going to see the world in a different way, and we have to ask questions. What are the philosophical justifications for that? What are the reasons for that? That is the realm of philosophy. In fact, a lot of philosophers are doing excellent work in theology when it comes to doctrines like the Incarnation, the Trinity, original sin, free will, and, and so forth. A lot of philosophical theologians 
are doing great work in this area. So philosophy has a lot to contribute to the theological discipline, so it should not be denigrated. Absolutely. Now, philosophy, I found to be incredibly helpful. So, so it'll put you on the spot. As we think about this, we're working with our students, right? So if you had to just, if you had just one tool of philosophy, you could give a college student, which concept or idea or, or whatever that might be, what brief tool would you give them and why? Well, when we're talking about tools, we're talking about ways of understanding the world, ways of living in the world. And I would remind people that philosophy is going to connect to how we live our lives every day. Uh, Philosophy is the love of wisdom, and wisdom is going to be applying the knowledge that we have to how we live out our lives. And so philosophy ultimately becomes inescapable to how we live our lives every day. There's always going to be a philosophy behind what we do. And so we need to make sure that the philosophy that we have actually matches up very nicely with the way that we are operating in our everyday lives. And I would argue that the Christian faith actually offers us a philosophy of life, as it were, to help to guide us in such a way that what we live and the way that we live in the world is not going to be inconsistent with that philosophy or that outlook that we are proclaiming. Unlike, say, an atheistic worldview that is often going to have to borrow from the theistic or even Christian worldview when it comes to human rights, when it comes to moral duties, when it comes to purpose and and significance and so forth, all of those things make a lot better sense in the biblical worldview or philosophy of life than an atheistic one. And so rather than having to borrow from another worldview, the Christian, uh, you know, as a Christian philosopher, I would say that we can have this consistency between the philosophy of life that we hold and how we live it out every day. And that's really helpful because, I mean, especially during this pivotal time as students, as they look out on the horizon of their life, there's going to be an organizing principle. There are going to be fundamental commitments that they need to have. And that core to that are certain philosophical assumptions or worldview, big ideas. So love, love your input there. You know, as, as Christians, we want to take the Bible seriously. It's God's word. And so as we read, sometimes people come across a passage in the book of Colossians that Paul wrote in chapter two, verse eight, that seems to cast a negative light on philosophy. Could you share maybe a little bit about maybe what's going on there and maybe what is we do need to be sober-minded about, but also what's he really saying there about philosophy? Well, excellent question. This is one of the texts that is indeed thrown around as though, who needs philosophy? Just give me Jesus. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, also from Colossians chapter 2. Well, what Paul is denouncing, and remember, Paul himself would have been considered a philosopher in his own day, Paul is denouncing these empty traditions and human philosophies, the ones that Paul elaborates on in the rest of the chapter, those that say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, the things that are merely the shadow of, you know, of the substance, which is Christ. And so he is reminding people, don't, don't come up with these laws that as though they're the end in themselves. These are not rooted in Christ. Paul is denouncing man-made laws, legalism, and so forth, not the philosophy of Christ. And so as we look at philosophy, we see that this can be a valuable tool. A lot of people assume, oh no, philosophy, it's atheistic. Well, no, people have been philosophers from all across the the spectrum. Some are atheists, some are theists. And so to say that philosophy is inherently atheistic is just false. Some of the world's leading philosophers have been theists, indeed, solid Christians like, you know, Augustine or Aquinas and so forth. So the, the scriptures are not opposed to evidence. We see signs 
signs and wonders and, and so forth. These are to help encourage belief. We see eyewitnesses. We see evidence and, and, and public defenses of the Christian faith as public truth. So rather than hiding behind this false idea of faith as though faith is somehow some blind leap, we need to understand faith as a matter of personal trust in God that isn't opposed to the evidence. John in 1 John chapter 1 talks about the word of life, that with the thing that we which we have handled, that which we have seen, that which we have handled concerning the word of life, this we proclaim to you. So there's not a, a departure from evidence. No, he's saying we're eyewitnesses. We even touched the word of you know, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is something that is part of the Christian message. So rather than being detached from rationality, from evidence, from these sorts of public, the public knowledge that the Christian faith is exhibiting, we say, no, it's, it, there is, philosophy has a great deal to do with this sort of thing. No, that, that's extremely helpful. One of the things that I love about this uh, this book, and again, I'm, my, I'm interviewing Dr. Paul Copan, and his book that we're talking about is a little book for new philosophers. He's here teaching our Impact 360 Gap Year students this week, and so these are some of the fun kinds of things we get to talk about uh, with him. But you've got a chapter in this book called Doubting Wisely. Can you kind of share a little bit about the approach that you're kind of kind of advocating there and what that might look like? Yeah, I think when people get into philosophy, a lot of times there is this tendency to doubt. I mean, philosophy does ask questions. What about this? What if that? And a lot of people who go into philosophy may be more prone to doubt. Or uh, I think just even helping people who are dealing with doubts, I think, is very important. It's part of pastoral care in the history of the church. And it's helpful for one to differentiate between different types of doubt. There's intellectual doubt, for example, which you know you address with answers, with evidence, with arguments, and so forth. But there are emotional doubts. And that is something that springs from some kind of insecurity that no rational argument, no evidence, no philosophical idea is going to quash or satisfy. That this is actually just, you could keep on asking, but what if, but what if, but what if? Well, that reflects that it's not really a matter of not having intellectual answers. There's probably some sort of deeper insecurity that needs to be addressed. Or there may be moral doubt, where people suddenly have doubts about God's existence now that they're starting to sleep around with their girlfriend, or that they've engaged in some sort of immoral act, and all of a sudden they become skeptical about God's existence. Uh, so again, it's not as though we can't see rational arguments, but a lot of times people hide behind rational arguments, and those things obscure what the real issue is. And so we need to be wise about how we process our doubts, how we deal with people who say that they're doubting, but they're maybe actually more beneath the surface. There are other types of doubt that we can talk about, but that's just a sampling. No, that's really helpful because, you know, in my experience too, working with students is that doubts can be complex because people are complex. And so, you know, it's kind of a, a it's a dashboard of the soul. And so what's, what's the warning light indicating? What is it? You know, the check engine light is on. So does that mean I need to change the oil or does the transmission needs to be replaced? So there's, so there's different varieties. So I love how you highlight that. One of the things that comes up sometimes is, do we need to have absolute certainty before we can say we know something as Christians? And, and kind of how does, how does that work? Maybe give us a little bit of insight on that. And that's another one of the things that I touch on in this book, in that section on doubt. A lot of people assume that knowledge requires 100% certainty, which no philosopher really advocates. People know, I mean, somebody like Descartes did, but, but really most philosophers today just reject that idea. Knowledge does not require 100% certainty. 
And I would issue the challenge that if you demand that knowledge requires 100% certainty, how do you know that knowledge requires 100% certainty? Are you 100% certain about that? Uh, again, it ends up becoming something of a self-refutation because surely there's some room for doubt there that you know, it's possible that you could be wrong in that insistence. And I think the point is a lot of people think, oh, if there's some measure of skepticism or if there's a logically possible alternative to this, therefore I can't have knowledge. And that's just a, a false assumption. And we need to, and that this book is trying to do, is, is disabuse us of that assumption and say, no, you can know things, even if they're less than 1% certain. We can have confident knowledge, even if it's not 100% certain. And then also a lot of people will connect knowledge to some sort of scientific proof. And again, that becomes problematic. People think, oh, I can't really know something unless it's scientifically provable. But again, how can you scientifically prove that all knowledge requires scientific proof? Again, that's not a the result of scientific observation. That's a philosophical assumption that people are bringing into this. So, so I try to bring that consideration into this whole question of doubt, because a lot of times what we set ourselves up for in terms of what we can believe and not believe is really a false assumption about what knowledge requires, no, it's not 100% certainty, uh, about what is required for grounding that knowledge, scientific proof. And again, you can't scientifically prove that. And so what I'm trying to do is help people to maybe step back and say, you know what, maybe the person who's insisting that knowledge requires 100% certainty are all of his beliefs that he holds, that he claims to know, are they 100% certain? Uh, are they scientifically provable? Well, again, th typically what people will do is they'll hold Christians to a much higher standard, a much higher bar than what they will allow for themselves. What They will give themselves a pass, but they'll hold Christians to this really, really high standard. Now, that's really helpful insight because I think that helps us not be kind of paralyzed and it helps us with our confidence if we realize we don't have to have 100% certainty on these things. One of, one of the reasons why I'm such a big uh, fan of, of Dr. Paul Copan over the years, especially as he writes very clearly in all the different books that he's written, uh, but he's also studied lots of different areas around the Christian faith. And one of those areas of expertise is your understanding of kind of Old Testament issues going on with ethics. And and uh, there's tons of stuff we could get into. But one, one thing that I think people sometimes, as they're reading the Bible, they have kind of questions about is this whole question of Abraham sacrificing Isaac and kind of why why would God command that or what should we learn from that? Why is that in the Bible for us? Um, so maybe could maybe give a few, I know you could probably say lots of things, but what are a few things that might help just kind of everyday Christians kind of better understand how to process a passage like that? Well, for one thing, this is a unique situation. It's not as though this is normative for all people that somehow, oh, God told me to do this. Uh, no, this is an unusual situation. And then there is also a track record that Abraham has with God, which people today won't be able to claim. And this is part of salvation history, that God is working out his purposes in a unique and remarkable way, paving the way for the coming of the Messiah and so forth. And God has already promised Abraham that it is through Isaac that blessing is going to come to the nations. So Abraham is confident that even though as he tells his servants that we are going to go and worship on this mountain, he assures them that we will return, he says in Genesis 22. He's confident that God is somehow going to either bring Isaac back from the dead, or somehow God is going to intervene in some way, but he's confident that this promised child is going to make the journey back with him. Uh, so there are a number of reassurances that we can see in the text itself. And we also can be reminded too, as we look beyond that when God is issuing this command to Abraham, 
It is not something that he is unwilling to do himself, that in Christ we see that God gives his very great gift, the gift of his own Son, who himself willingly lays down his life for us, that we, through this sacrifice, might find redemption. So even in this picture of Abraham offering his son and not bringing him to death, we see that in the self-sacrificial death of Jesus himself, God is offering uh, salvation to us through this death on the cross so that we ourselves might be redeemed. And I think that's so important, and I really appreciate the study and the work you've done on that, because, you know, even as we head into this Christmas season, you know, it's so important to understand that the Bible's not full of isolated events, that there's this unfolding revelation that God is doing, this God who speaks, and this plan that He's working together for His good purposes. And so that's part of this story, so it's not just an isolated event. Well, uh, we could fill up hours getting to talk to Dr. Paul Copan, but I just want to commend you out there to check out this book, uh, his new book called A Little Book for New Philosophers, written by Paul Copan. It's an excellent book. But Paul, we really appreciate you and your investment in our students here at Impact 360 or our gap year, and really appreciate all the work you do for the body of Christ at large. Thanks very much, and it's really a great pleasure to be here, and I really commend you all for the excellent work that you're doing at Impact 360. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.